Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on The New Aleph, Soma released a deadline saying she would bring anyone guilty of soul space abuse in Pan to justice. Aramis decided to try and smuggle some people out of Pan, including Paul, and Nathan sought an alliance with a syndicate called the Suyu Cult. And now, chapter 15 of The New Aleph. feels like a bad idea. Hewn didn't respond. He was busy acting like he was looking at the architecture, but was probably sizing up each person they passed. Most were bundled up in heavy but finely cut wool coats. Soma adjusted her smoke coat, as she'd come to call it, feeling like she was standing out more because of the heavy, rough fabric coat than because she was an orangish-red skinned pravied. The rest of her clothes were normal enough, a simple dress and wool stockings. Trying to blend in more, Soma imitated Hewn, glancing over the small but nice houses mixed in with small but nice businesses. The wood and stone buildings were squeezed together along the road that wound through the shallow valley cut into the side of the mountain. There was overgrown grass and moss everywhere, which undercut the beauty of the quaint area somewhat. The whole town was enclosed by pine trees that topped the ridges of the valley. Further up the slope, the trees were spotted with chunks of snow. Soma was about to wonder if it was old or fresh snow when little specks of white began to dust the road but melt right away. I imagined Abaddon differently. It seems too unpopulated to be a place to walk around unnoticed. Hewn shook his head. It's bigger than it looks. We're in the Western Valley, a sort of rich quarter. There are about five neighborhoods in different valleys running along the mountain. Most are bigger than this one. Soma frowned at the houses. They were nice, but this didn't look like a rich quarter. Then why aren't we in one of those neighborhoods? Hewn smiled, something Soma didn't see him do very often. Because the Abenzin upper class hates the Alephs. A lot. Even if they figured out who you are, they're not going to tell anyone. So they hate the group more than they could hate an individual? Even if it's their least favorite from that group? You're just the flavor of the week. They hate the idea. You'd be surprised how many Alephs actually have second homes here, because they know they'll be left alone, even if they're recognized. It's a pretty enough neighborhood. Soma said as they passed a narrow three-story house that had been converted into a restaurant. So, where's my new school? Hewn nodded forward, and a couple blocks later he led her through a door into what seemed like a closet between two other businesses. It was very narrow, but once they were inside, she could see that there was an open exercise floor in the middle, with changing rooms and a restroom in the back. Very compact, just enough room to move around. The floor and walls were blackened stone. Hanging on the back wall were a couple long scrolls with Chinese characters, plus a smaller square one with a simple black and white symbol of eight diamonds encircling a small wheel. Ah, a stone man and a fire woman make good companions. A smiling woman stepped out of the women's changing room, wearing white warm-ups. I assume you are Hewn and Dan. 
Hugh nodded. Thank you for agreeing to help us out, Anna. She came over and shook their hands. I'm Anna David. As Soma took her hand, she noticed that Anna had vassal tattoos on her wrists. Four rings of dense writing. Anna caught where she was looking and smiled bigger. Cost me a pretty penny, those. But no other way to teach the arts if you can't do them yourself. Hewn answered Soma's question before she could ask it. Anna isn't a vassal. Not an official one, anyway. You don't have to be one to get the tattoos. Requires a lot of hassle. Anyway, let's get to work. Aramis's left leg kept jittering as she sat in the back room of Jack and Ben's, waiting to see who might show up for the meeting. She nodded as Paul came in a couple minutes after the official starting time, neither of them saying anything as he sat down beside her. She focused on staring at her notes on her pen reader and her rough paper notebook, constantly wondering about all the things she could have done to be more prepared. Then, surprisingly, Phyllis came in a few minutes later. Aramis thought she had run off to the Serling Islands, but apparently not. Aramis watched her as she took a seat near the back and pulled out a small zine and read silently. Aramis wanted to ask how she'd heard about the meeting and why she was still on the main continent at all, but Phyllis hadn't made any eye contact, so Aramis let the awkwardness keep her silent. Later, a fire previed guy and a stone previed gal came in and waved to Paul. Paul introduced them as Milton and Aubrey, the two people he had run into at the docks. Then Jules entered, who Aramis hadn't seen since she'd led him down the mountain after his birth as a water prevede. Then Gail, for whom Aramis had been constantly working during the last few months. She was also a surprise, because Aramis had told her about the meeting without any expectation that she'd come, but Aramis had no idea how Jules had even found out about it. After 20 minutes past the start time, Aramis took a deep breath and decided to get everyone's attention. This was her least favorite part of doing anything. Hey, well, I guess we'll get started. Looks like a pretty small group, but that's okay. Right away, Jules raised his hand, smiling. Aramis nodded to him. Yeah? Hey, um, I should mention, there are a bunch of people from the romantic water camp that are interested. But I figured that I would just come for them and tell them what I heard. Aramis frowned. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. How many people? Jules sort of fidgeted and frowned without answering the question right away. That's our situation too, said Milton, who gestured to himself and then to Aubrey. Lots of folks who hang out by the South Docks want to come along. Phyllis gestured vaguely with a limp hand. Same here. Some from our camp decided not to go to Curator when they heard about your trip. Blood was draining out of Aramis's head. A moment ago, she was pleasantly disappointed that her group would only be half a dozen. The more people they had, the more difficult it would be to pull this off. Of course, it also meant they had a better chance of defending themselves if they ran into trouble. Aramis was pulled out of her contemplation when she noticed that Phyllis and Aubrey were having a muted conversation, their faces serious. She watched them a moment, then asked, 
well, how many are there that want to do this? Like, everybody all together. You guys aren't just telling everyone, are you? I mean, if the Alice found out, they might come after us. They all shook their heads. Jules answered for them. No, I've only talked to people I've gotten to know really well. Phyllis nodded. And that's why there's just me or, well, us here. Having all of us meet would draw too much attention. Milton sort of coughed out a rough smoker's laugh. Don't think anyone would believe us anyway. A bunch of morons trying to get back to Prometheus. I wouldn't believe it, but Paul says you're pretty serious. Actually, we're not going to Prometheus. But before I get into that, how many are there that want to come with us? Jules spoke first. About 20. Aramis's eyebrows shot up. 20? Then Phyllis. Anywhere from 15 to 35. Feeling sick, Aramis then turned to Milton and Aubrey. Then Aubrey said, Ah, well, it's a lot. I mean, at first it was just five or ten, but... The room felt stuffy during the long wait before Aramis asked, How much is a lot? Milton squinted an eye, sort of taking on an apologetic expression, but still with an amused smile beneath it. Maybe two hundred. Aramis forced herself to nod, even though she felt her face starting to tingle with numbness. Oh, that is a lot. Soma inhaled the pancakes and the biscuits and gravy and the hash browns and the scrambled eggs. She and Hewn were up on the second floor of that house-turned restaurant they passed on the way to Anna's studio. Anna had put Soma through drills for almost two straight hours, making her do stretches and jogging and punching, all before she'd even got around to doing anything related to her fire abilities and she spent most of that second half merely staring at long, slow fuses. Burning fuses that she had to try and either speed up or slow down. It had been absolutely exhausting. So, Soma said, taking a break from eating to breathe, when do I start controlling my own fire instead of something that's already burning? Hune nodded. Soma stuffed more hash browns in her mouth as he talked. Anna will have you build up your control before she starts you on that. It's the same skill either way, whether you're controlling fuses or your own Kesho. Soma put her knife and fork down. She finished chewing. Anna used that term. It's the magical energy, correct? Hyun shrugged. That's the easiest explanation for it. It has five forms, and all Alephs and Praveeds have it. It's also what powers Mazai devices. Non-Praveed vassals sometimes borrow from their master's Kesho. It's like an ethereal muscle group. It gets tired and then has to rest and recuperate. Soma frowned. You just brought up three completely different topics. Hewn looked at the table and stuck out his lower lip. Well, okay. When you control fire... It's like you're using a special invisible muscle. That's your Kesho in its void form. The further you are away from the fire, the more difficult it is, and the more you strain your Kesho. When you make fire come out of your body, though, 
That's your Kesho shifting from void form to plasma form. For me, I'm stone. So when Kesho comes out of me, it's solid. Usually it's sand. Except when I'm using my sword, then it just turns straight into obsidian. It's only because the sword is specially designed to do that. And that's why only a stone Preveed can use a sword like that. For water Preveeds, it comes out as liquid, turning to water. For wind, it comes out as a gas, turning to air. The table went silent as Soma looked at the ceiling and processed all this. Is there a difference in the loss of energy between the different elements? Well, they're not elements exactly, they're states of matter. But what I mean is the latent heat released from void form to each state. Is that different? Hune's eyes grew large. Yes, that part will be much easier to explain if you already understand that stuff. Yes, when Keshu changes from void, which is the highest state, to a different state, it releases the amount of energy required for it to change to that state. So, since you're a fire, it's only dropping one level down to plasma. So there's a mild release of latent heat, but the fire retains the most energy. But for me, as a stone, there's a massive release of energy when my Kesho turns to sand. It's difficult for a preview to actually control that latent heat, though. Soma nodded. The implications of what Hune was explaining were possibly very complex, resulting in vast differences in how each element could be used. She could ask more about that, but there was something nagging in the back of her mind. This is all pretty ridiculous. Why would magical stuff need to follow the laws of physics anyway? Hune folded his arms. It doesn't follow all of them. I mean, fire, air, water, and sand aren't all different states of the same thing. But those are the things Kesho changes into. Not sure anyone really knows why it works that way. It's just how the Ta wanted it. Soma snorted. She took in a deep breath and relaxed back in her chair. I'll attend Anna's workouts. But I am going to stick to using the pistols. I already know how to shoot. I'm not particularly interested in learning how to launch fireballs from my hands when a gun will do a much better job. Hune frowned. A gun can be taken away. It can malfunction. So can I. Soma looked down at her hand. This odd conflict between physics and magic wasn't actually what was bothering her, though. You say people here hate the Alephs. Are there resistance groups? Hune looked upset by the question, meaning the answer was probably yes. Well, there are the cults. Sometimes they're violent. Some Alephs secretly support them. Anna is a member of one of the more anarchist ones, one that Negri used to keep a close eye on, which ironically is how I know Anna. Which one does she associate with? Kaze means wind. Wind? When I hear wind, I don't think of paramilitary resistance group. Hune looked at the ceiling. Their philosophies are complicated. Soma realized she needed more than to just figure out how to control her magical energy if she wanted to stay alive. How could I meet with them immediately?
what? Nathan leaned back in the comfy chair, frowning. Mr. Jin, leader of the Soyo cult, laughed loudly. His long beard seemed to flow in the breeze of it. It's sort of an insult contest. Nathan watched the stocky man get up from the couch across from him and pace around the low-lit study. Everything was made of hardwood and leather, and there was a square chandelier over the coffee table in the center. Mr. Jin paused his pacing by a woodblock painting hanging on the wall of waves crashing against a rocky shore. And that's how you'll know I can be trusted? By having me insult you? Mr. Jin appeared to be contemplating the painting. No, I know you're powerful. You're probably a rogue, Aleph, but trust takes time. Maybe you could give me a little something more? Not sure how much more I can tell you safely. Mm, I don't really buy your story about some war on the horizon. Nathan nodded. I know there's a war coming because I have several plans for making a lot of people very unhappy. I know you're not fans of the assembly. Nope. Jin turned around to face Nathan. He folded his arms. Partly because they have no sense of humor. The contest is sort of a way to make sure that you do. Hey guys. So I wanted to let you know that I'm planning on doing another Q&A episode sometime soon. Possibly before the last couple chapters of the new Aleph. So send me your questions on Facebook, Twitter, in person, whatever. If I don't get enough questions, I may have to hunt people down and force them to give me questions. So I need those questions. I need them. Anyway, let's get back to the show. I don't know if I'm going to get used to this. Akahiro smiled as he led Nathan out of the elevator and onto the platform below Mr. Jin's house. He looked up at it. A metal... thing. 50 meters long by 20 meters wide, suspended in the air about 40 meters above him. It almost looked like a spaceship, with the front weirdly looking like the front of a 1970s Buick Regal? Whatever it was supposed to look like, Nathan was mostly just happy to find more hover things here in Pan. The house was tethered down by a couple heavy steel cables. One was anchored on one side of the Time River and another on the other side, a lichen-engulfed wooden bridge crossing directly beneath the house. That and the elevator going up to the house were the only actual structures on the ground. The rest of the area was open, tall grass swaying in the breeze. Nathan had no idea how it was staying up there, but Nathan had already seen magical flying boats. One more wasn't a shock. What was a shock were the hundreds of other house ships like this set up all over the countryside all up and down the grassy plains surrounding the river and the dark wooded hills to the west and the climbing mountains to the east. House ships of all sorts of shapes. Some looked like actual houses. Some had a sort of sci-fi aerodynamic shape like gins. Some looked like giant airstream trailers. But most looked like actual boats. 
like the ones Soma Dan had taken from the Citadel. Jin's was one of the largest and was definitely the most spaceship-looking, with nicer and larger ones predominantly to the east toward Chrysoprase's downtown area. Downtown was cut right out of the dense forest covering the foot of the mountains, mostly stone and brick buildings on the ground. There were a handful of the house ships docked to elevators sticking out of some of the taller buildings. Jin marched down to the riverbank, Akihiro following him. They passed a few small flying boats that were only a couple meters off the ground, one of them being the craft that Akihiro and Nathan had ridden in to and from the narthex. As the boss passed, a handful of men and women climbed down rope ladders from the boats and followed him. Nathan was still standing by the elevator, feeling uneasy. Jin had reached a little cliff overlooking the river, a few paces down from the bridge. About 15 of his people were gathered around him now, looking expectant. Nathan sighed and decided to join them. Hey, uh... Nathan cleared his throat as he approached the group, all of them turning and looking at him. He was not at all encouraged by the look of expectation and amusement on their faces. He was even less encouraged as a couple people came over, holding large sheets of plywood and setting them up next to each other on the cliff. I haven't really done anything like this. What kind of insults do we use? Mr. Jin shrugged, smiling. Whatever kind. Nathan stuck his hands in his pockets and squinted an eye. Mr. Jin had already been smiling, but his eyes disappeared as he leaned in close with a huge smile, as if about to speak conspiratorially with him, but his voice did not quiet at all. Make sure you don't hold back. He walked a little ways away, passing Akahiro, who whispered something to him that made him let out a deep belly laugh. Nathan looked around and saw a few of the folks scooting the wood planks over so that they were hanging about halfway over the cliff. Then they all went to stand on the planks, eight on one, seven on the other. Mr. Jin handed his coffee to Akahiro and stepped out onto the edge of the plank with eight people standing on it. Nothing was below him now, but a centimeter or so of plywood, a couple meters of air, and then the swift moving river. Well, the bearded boss said, clear and loud. He gestured to the overhanging part of the other plank. Since you are the visitor, you may begin. Nathan, slouching, looked at him and at the audience. A dozen jokes scrolled through his mind as he walked past the people providing ballast to hold his plank up. He immediately realized a huge problem. He was centuries removed from these people, and a world removed. They may all speak English, but there was no common context. How could he know how to be insulting without knowing anything about these people? They lived in flying mobile mansions. They had elemental superpowers. They thought they were living in a world built by magic, by his old associates, who they thought were godlike saints. The plywood sheet wobbled as he stepped out onto it. What are the rules again? Akahiro stood between the two groups. Everyone goes to the plank of the person they think is winning. If you lose too many people, you fall in. Stick to basics. 
That's what Nathan needed to do. Nathan nodded to Mr. Jin and drew in a long breath and picked something to try. A good, slow warm-up. Okay. Uh, your mama's so ugly when she sits in a sandbox, cats try to bury her. Jin nodded, sticking out his lower lip. About half the people laughed. Three from Jin's plank moving to Nathan's, and two moving from Nathan's to Jin's. The transition caused Nathan's footing to wobble in a very disconcerting way. Okay, okay. Jin folded his arms. Can't discount the classics. Are you going to use some Shakespearean dick jokes next? Two people shifted to Jin's side, making Nathan frown. At least you guys know about Shakespeare. Have you heard of Bigfoot? Jin hesitated, then nodded. Sure. Nathan smiled. Your mama's so hairy, Bigfoot took a picture of her. No one laughed. Some people smiled. No one even bothered to switch planks. That one had killed back in middle school. Damn, not the room for that one. Jin smiled. Well, if that's your turn then, I'll take a crack at your department. Your mama's so ugly she has to put on makeup to go on the radio. Everyone laughed at that one, including Nathan, though he did stop when half left his plank, leaving only four. Still, he had to give credit where it was due. Nice. I think that one's from Chris Rock. Who? Mr. Jin said between guffaws at his own joke. Nathan rolled his eyes. Whatever. Your mother's so fat, her nickname is Damn! That did it. He got as good a laugh as Jin had. At least, being out of time meant that his old cliche jokes were fresh to these guys. Four moved to bring Nathan's plank back up to eight. Jin wasn't phased. Your mom is so skinny, she has to run around the shower to get wet. Another with half the crowd laughing. Nobody shifted. Nathan waved a hand. Ah, that's an old one. Jin burst into laughter. They're all old ones! And you're so old, you owe a quarter to seven. Who? Oh, come on, I already did that one. Nathan frowned. He actually wanted to know what he was talking about. But he could ask about that later. And he needed a zinger. He needed a good solid hit to win everyone over. His heart was beating hard and his grinning face was tingling a little. It was kind of ridiculous how much fun and terrifying this was. He was about to make a joke about a dress with dimples and being called one of those ugly shuttle bus things. But then he remembered those were on the Prometheus side. He remembered being stumped when he was a kid back in Hesperia, California. The ridicule of friends. And that made him remember his mom. The way she would roll her eyes, almost in boredom, when a friend or cousin would tattle on him for saying bad jokes like this at school. Out of jokes, friend? No, Nathan smiled, remembering something his mom once said. Speaking of mothers, that beard of yours, your beady little eyes, when kids misbehave, their mothers must point at you and say, see that man? If you don't stop, he's going to take you away. He said this line in a hushed, exaggerated version of his mom's voice, and there was a delay before a handful of people on both sides started laughing. Nathan gained two more people, leaving only three precariously holding up Jin on his plank. But it wasn't the kind of hit Nathan was hoping for. Mr. Jin bowed. 
You leave me no choice. I must borrow from the bard. Your mother's so fat, people keep discovering new worlds on her. A handful laughed, one person moving to Mr. Jin's, which disappointed him. What? That was a really good one. Running out of zingers? I'm getting bored. Jin stepped from the plank onto the grass and walked toward Nathan. Let's have dinner. Wait, we can do that? Doesn't someone have to fall into the water first? Sure. Jin walked casually up to Nathan and shoved him off his plank. The air filled with hearty laughter as he rushed down and then heard nothing but splashing as he plunged into ice-cold water. Much, much colder than he thought it would be. He was fished out half a minute later after swallowing a good deal of the river. Everyone was still laughing as they offered him a towel on the way back to the elevator. At the moment, Nathan didn't think it was very funny. Paul watched Phyllis leave. The moment she was out the door and only Paul and Aramis were left in the back room of the restaurant, Aramis dropped her forehead onto the table in front of her and groaned. I am a crazy person, she said, leaving her face on the table. The attendees had been talking for hours and hours, putting together a plan, always expecting Aramis to be the one to make the final decision on what to do. Through a small window, they had watched the sun go down long ago. The evening had been odd to watch because Paul could tell that Aramis did not enjoy this burden of trust and responsibility. Still, she was the only one who would ever suggest that they make final decisions on any of the details. And she nearly always came up with decisions that were reasonable and logical. She would wring her hands and clench them into fists and knock her teeth together loud enough for Paul to hear, all the while trying to keep her facial expression calm. And she always made a decision. And everyone would always agree to it. Paul stood up and leaned against a wall. Maybe being crazy is what it takes. I'll help with getting everyone organized if you want. Of course I do. I thought we'd have a merry band of 10 or 12. Not 250. At least everyone is ready to go as soon as possible. I feel like if I had more time to try and plan, I'd just get more anxious and find more problems. I would like to have a little more time, though. As Aubrey mentioned, thankfully, the only way we're going to be able to afford the train tickets is to get advanced ones. Which means we have to order them right away because that's that's a minimum of two weeks. That leaves just a week and a half before Dan's deadline, and whatever societal chaos that will accompany it. Paul nodded as Aramis leaned back, looking exhausted. He pulled out his pen reader and looked at his notes. So, it will take a few hours to get to Chrysoprase by train. Then it's a few days' walk to the Narthex. We'll need a lot of food. Aramis frowned at him. Um... I know it's mostly superstition, but it makes me really nervous seeing you write that stuff down on your pen reader. Paul's arms fall limp at his side. Yeah, about that? Why does everyone use that expensive, thick paper for everything? And why is it so messy with, like, strings and stuff in it? Aramis gestured at a stack of security paper sitting on the table. No one's told you? It's the block Clausius magic. 
and avoiding the Alephs hacking into pen readers. People can use Clausius to read stuff you've written on regular paper, but security paper makes it impossible for him to figure out what's been written on it. Paul frowned. That doesn't sound like superstition. That's just some sort of mazai, right? I don't know. Either way, I'd rather you didn't put notes from our meeting on your pen reader. I know it's more of a hassle to use security paper, but it will make me feel a lot better. Paul shrugged. Good a reason as any. Getting back to what you said, Phyllis thinks she and the people she's bringing can afford to buy a lot of the food we'll need, but I still think I'm going to need to sell my tools, especially to get train tickets for everyone. Paul leaned back from her. You can't do that. Aramis shrugged. I don't really need them anymore anyway. I've been working with Gail and learning a lot about Mazai potions. She's found people that want to come with us, but she's not going. So I can just work for her after the mission. The mission. Something about the way Aramis said that bothered Paul. He had a feeling she was making an excuse, overly minimizing. She'd spent years building her tool collection. This was a major sacrifice. Paul spoke with a calmer voice. You don't need to do that. We'll find other ways to pay for it all. Aramis ignored him. She absently leafed through her notes. I just hope you don't run into any snow. I wish we could wait longer, but with only three weeks left... Yeah, either way, she's probably a more serious threat than the weather. Aramis picked up her notes. Have you decided what your plan's going to be yet? Paul's head drooped at that question. It brought up some anger that had been brewing in him toward Aramis. Not for any rational reason. It was almost just anger toward the situation. I don't know. I know the whole plan depends on us going somewhere we can get asylum. But if I want to get back to Susie, I have to ignore all that. Aramis was staring at the stack of papers in her hands. I have some ideas for how to get you into Prometheus safely. The fact that you're not actually a Pravid is the only reason it's even possible. In fact, that's something I need to talk to you about now that everyone's gone. Paul waited for her to continue, but then she got distracted and scribbled down more notes on the papers. What? We need, she began, still writing, to make you look like an Aleph. What if we poison him? Soma wasn't sure, but she thought that was the voice of the sister that had been raped on that Lower Empire show. She occasionally caught snippets of it when Sorensen was listening to it. Someone had a radio on as Soma entered the dim, cluttered attic of a building buried in one of the poor valleys in Ebenston. She had hewn with her. She and him bundled up in musty old coats that had been buried in a cabinet in the Galleria. Sorensen was outside in the chilly morning sunlight, keeping watch, wearing a baggy down coat that looked ridiculous on her long, slender frame. He's your brother, said the bad guy, King Moore, the one who had done the raping, 
who the sister had decided to marry anyway as a means of eventually getting revenge on him. Not to kill him, just to unsettle him. Just enough. The plotting was all very confusing, and everyone in the show was a terrible person as far as Soma could sort out. She tried to ignore the radio as she faced a very focused man, wearing some sort of headset over his ear with a mic sticking out. He sat in a swivel chair next to a desk that was pushed up below a large round window. A big tough man with a messy beard and a couple uneasy looking women wearing plain dresses stood over on the other side of the room. All of them wore the same white sleeveless jackets over their regular clothes. Printed on the left breast of each jacket was the eight diamonds encircling a ring symbol that had been on the wall of Anna's studio. She'd thought it was some sort of Chinese symbol, but it wasn't, according to Hune. It was an ancient Japanese family crest of a pinwheel to represent wind. The focused man at the desk had all sorts of devices attached to his belt. A couple different pen readers, what looked like an aleph key with wires pulled out of it, two knives, a couple obsidian cylinders with ruby buttons on top, a large hip holster with a long pistol in it, and an almost comically small gun holster behind that. The look he gave Soma didn't look friendly, but he did smile somewhat as he extended a hand for her to shake without standing up. Carl, you must be Detective Dan. Always pleased to see someone who's killed a dozen Alephs. Seven. My friend killed the rest. Soma took Carl's hand, a bit unnerved. The last person to refer to her as detective had been one of the Aleph's messengers. She wasn't sure if this man was saying it to honor her background as a civil servant, or as an attempt to minimize her. If we do this, we'll need to cover our tracks. They'll suspect me first. Carl turned off the radio and gestured for Soma to sit in a wooden chair in the center of the small room. She sat down and looked around at the stacks of books and electronic devices piled up on shelves and maps and confusing diagrams covering the walls. The book titles were interesting, ones like The Aleph Conspiracy, The Maybar Lie, Demanding Truth from Power, and A People Worth Fearing. She could guess what those probably rambled about. But what really drew her attention was a stack of thick, hardbound volumes of a collection called The Entropy of Superpowers. It included Volume 1, A Paragon of Arrogance, The Rise and Fall of the British Empire. Volume 2, Expansionist Hypocrisy, The American Experiment. Volume 3, Delayed Apocalypse. Pretenses of Peace in the League of Nations. Volume 4, Madness in Idealism, the Marxist Revolutions. And Volume 5, Isolation through Interconnectivity, the Deplorability of Information's Rule. All the buzzwords and references in those titles brought back vague memories from her high school late earth history class where they'd read short excerpts from those books on pen readers, but she'd never seen actual full volumes before. Carl pulled her away from her curiosity. 
Anna said, you are interested in meeting people who want to overthrow the Aleph's. You do realize that would include you, right? Soma nodded. I only want to be an Aleph long enough to make sure they start following their own laws. The man folded his arms and shook a little with a laugh. Well, I can't say I blame you. I'd probably do the same. You've got a nice pair of stacks there. Soma frowned, then looked down at the hip holster strapped to her legs, where he'd gestured. She rubbed her thumb on the still char-blackened grip of the pistol on her right side. They work well enough. Listen, you know I have enemies. You know what I'm trying to do. And I need help. Carl grinned, holding up his hands and looking around the room. Not sure how I can do that. I'm just... We have a rare opportunity. The Assembly is choosing to leave me alone, for the most part. I think they're distracted with something else. Because the Assembly is ignoring me, the mayors are listening to me. Except our mayor. Soma nodded. Because your mayor hates the Assembly. And all Alephs. Only reason we bother living in this ice crack in a mountain. Because the mayors are listening to me, power is about to shift. Carl studied her hard. How? I have the evidence I need to force every soul offender in Pan to come to justice. This probably isn't a huge surprise, but they're all people of influence and wealth. If they turn themselves in, I'll lock them up. If they do not, the law says they face execution. Either way, they won't be of influence or wealth anymore. How many, if you don't mind me asking? Over 5,000. Carl whistled. The police won't be able to handle that. Bounty hunting is about to become a very profitable industry. Carl furrowed his brow and turned to look out the round window and up at the golden sky. The only reason I can think of for why the mayors would be listening to you is if you're seated. They have to be friends with some of the people you're threatening. So that's the only thing that would scare them enough to cooperate. Soma dug into her jacket and pulled out Negri's olive pen, which was burgundy, not black like the broken ones he had. There was a noticeable change in the atmosphere of the cramped room as all eyes locked onto it. Hune, standing right behind her, shifted his weight. Carl's mouth smiled, but his eyes were narrowed and piercing. Has anyone told you yet what you can do with that little red pen? Soma nodded, though her affirmative was an exaggeration. In truth, she'd barely scratched the surface of what the key was capable of, and she knew it. Carl's whole face smiled as he tapped the side of his head. Do you know why you can do what you can do? Soma remained motionless. Carl did his noiseless laugh again and stood up. Come on, I want to show you something. Thanks for listening. Chapter 16 will be posting February 19th. 
To keep up to date on all Maybar-related news or to ask me questions, find me on most of the things at A. William Wright. The World's a Maybar podcast is a production of Diamond Plate Studios and is written and performed by me, Andy Wright. Special thanks to Michael Wright of The Restitution for use of music from his album Into the Dark. You can find more of his music at therestitution.com. And as always, have a great couple of weeks, everybody. Thank you.